Hello, Book of Wrestling listeners. If you're enjoying our show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative podcasts, like 22 Goals, a history of the Men's World Cup told through the lens of some of the most iconic goals ever scored in the tournament. Or you could listen to This Blew Up, a brand new investigative look into the social media influencer industrial complex. Is it really that easy to become famous? Or maybe you'd like Icons Club, a history of the NBA told through the voices of legendary players like Michael Jordan, Dr. J, and Shaq. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, do you think Eric Bischoff sucks? Hell yeah! He sucks! Do you think WCW sucks? Imagine this. You're a star on a TV show in the thick of a ratings battle, and the competition is getting a little testy. Among many other transgressions, your rival has made a habit of staging their shows close to where you stage your shows on the same night and giving out free tickets to try to dilute your audience. One night, you realize they're doing their show one town over, a short drive from where you're set up. So how do you fight back? If you said dress up in camouflage and helmets and stage a comedic military raid complete with a Jeep, rocket launcher, and a cache of dick jokes in place of bullets, then congratulations, you've got what it takes to join the DX Army. This is April 27th, 1998, the night that Degeneration X invaded WCW Monday Nitro. Stand up straight, soldier. Today, we embark on a mission. We have seen the enemy, and they are near. So today, we will go down there. Down where, sir? Sir? And we will blow them out of the water. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. I'm David Shoemaker. This mission will start at the Norfolk Scope with WCW Wrestling. (laughs) And it will end right here tonight at the Hampton Roads Coliseum for raw is war. This is your mission if you choose to accept it. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, it will be all for one and one for all. Now suck <laughs> it and let's go yeah. get him. Oh my God, yeah. that fell off. Yeah. Don't touch it. Get your hat. Don't lose your head. I'm the retro. Let's go! April 27th, 1998. 
The members of DX, that's Triple H, China, Xbox, Road Dog, and Billy Gunn, laced up their combat boots, donned their matching DX tees, pulled on their fatigues, slapped on camo face paint, and topped the look off with helmets emblazoned with green X's. They also brought along a megaphone, with which Triple H berated WCW while riding atop the DX quote-unquote tank, but the whole thing was half-assed in the silliest possible way. They called their transport a tank, but it was a jeep. I mean, it was obviously a jeep, and a rather small one by, you know, Humvee standards. And they crammed in all five members of DX, plus the unnamed driver of the jeep, plus the oversized cannon on top. Uh, it looked ridiculous. It reinforced the inanity of it all. It was farce. It was kind of dumb. But it was entirely appropriate. See, this was in the heart of pro wrestling's Monday Night Wars. You've heard it referenced a lot on this show. Here's the short version. WCW made a play for WWE's market share by signing away some of their biggest stars and launching a show to go head-to-head -head with WWE's flagship Monday Night Raw program. Yeah, you've heard me say all this before, so why don't we let someone else say it? Hey, I'm Trey Kirby, co-host of the No Dunks podcast on The Athletic. The Monday Night Wars was the beef, the week-to-week drama, the firing back and forth between WCW Nitro and WWE Monday Night Raw. Who was going to be out on top? Who was going to be the number one wrestling promotion in the game? And where are the biggest stars going to end up? And how are they going to get there? In a lot of standpoints, it's not dissimilar to, you know, NBA teams stocking up for the next season, trying to figure out who's going to be the super team, who's going to be the team to beat. That was happening on the airwaves for wrestling. Trey is a lifelong wrestling fan, as well as being part of one of the most influential NBA podcasts in the universe. But if you're wondering why specifically he's on this episode, well, stay tuned. Anyway, the two pro wrestling companies used to peacefully coexist, more or less, but now everybody at WCW was ready to prove that they weren't some second-class operation, and everybody at WWE was suddenly convinced that WCW was trying to put them out of business and ruin their lives and ruin everything. Both companies upped the ante on their Monday shows to try to win the ratings battle. Thus, war. It's a metaphor, of course. There was no violent conflict, I mean, outside of what happened in the wrestling ring, and the battle, such as it was, was for TV ratings and fans' adoration. But with the exception of the short-lived billionaire Ted sketches that directly lampooned the owner of WCW, along with aging stars like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, WWE hadn't done much in the way of directly addressing the competition. Now, WCW, they read off WWE match results live on the air to try to keep people from changing the channel. The wrestlers they signed away from WWE openly referenced their previous place of employment on TV. WCW was engaging in a brawl, and WWE was doing all it could to dodge punches. This night was the first night that they swung back. Ladies and gentlemen, DX proudly shows the world that we are the only ones with the sack big enough to fire the first shot at WCW. For the people involved in the invasion, it was less of a battle and more of a practical joke. Here's Road Dog. We got there at TV that day, and uh, 
apparently they had planned it as soon as they found out the tickets were on sale 45 minutes away down the, down the interstate. But I didn't know until I got to TV that day at about noon and uh, they caught, got us in an office, told us what was going on. I mean, of course, again, I'm young and I'm hungry. I think this is funny. I think this is uh, good television. And I'm like, oh my God, this is great. So me and Billy go to start he starts camouflaging his helmet. I have the pyro guy drill a hole in my helmet so I can pull my braids through. You know what I mean? I'm just thinking about little things to be funny, just visually funny. How could we do this? X-Pac, a recent WCW transplant, was along for the ride. We didn't really know, like, like we didn't have a real solid plan, man. <laughs> we were really winging it, a lot of it. What they did was roll up to the arena and clown around. Triple H narrated the affair over the megaphone, a juvenile collage of army-related sexual innuendos and just regular sexual innuendos. They talked to WCW fans outside who were excited to see them and got a few of them to admit that they liked DX or like WWE better than WCW or, worst of all, that they had gotten free tickets to be there. They also showed a hilarious and hilariously doctored clip of the digital marquee out front of the arena that said free admission, that was from an advertisement for a later event there, and then WCW Monday Nitro, April 27th, which made it look like WCW's Monday Nitro show was allowing people in for free, which they weren't. It was clearly faked, but the point and the joke stood. The jokes wrote themselves, more or less. What I'd like to know is, not from experience, but do you think WCW sucks? Of course. <laughs> and the biggest thing I want to know is who rules professional wrestling? DX. Yeah! yeah. What I want to know is, did you pay for your ticket to come here tonight? Hell no, going for free! Remember, DX at this point is ultra popular. I did a two-part episode about DX, that's Suck It, parts one and two, that chronicled how a pseudo-street gang of juvenile pranksters made an impression still felt to this day. You can look in the feed and check that out, or you can just listen to Trey again. DX was and is still legendary to me. I mean, if you were in high school starting in 1997, like I was, there was nothing more exciting than be able to tell a football coach or an enemy in the hallway to suck it. <laughs> I kind of still think that's true up until I uh, had kids of my own. And I don't necessarily know that I'll be passing that on to them. But you see with a guy like Joel Embiid, who would have been probably after DX's peak, he still loves it too. They captured the minds and the eyeballs way back when. And left a lot of indelible memories. And symbolically, this was a major moment in the Monday Night Wars. WWE won the ratings contest that night, their second win in three weeks after 83 weeks of losing in the ratings. The stakes of this metaphorical showdown were significant, but the quote-unquote invasion? Well, even a comedy segment needs real-world stakes written retroactively into it. What I want to know is, does anybody here have any of the free tickets that WCW gives away to try to fill up their TV? And if anybody doesn't know, this is D-Generation X, and we are carrying a fight for the front line against WCW tonight. We have fired the first shot in the world. 
And another thing, we just want to say what's up to our boys, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Let my people go. Let my people go. Here's Road Dog's recollection. The whole way down there, we're talking about, okay, so what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And we didn't know what we were going to do. We didn't know what we were going to run into. So it was a total improv uh, day. And we also spoke uh, briefly about what if that what if that door would have opened? You know what I mean? <laughs> that door, we were down there banging on that door. And uh, and what if that door would have opened? Because immediately I go down, uh, and I've told this story before, the roster who am I going to take out first? You know, I got to find the biggest guy in the yard and drop him first. And then I realized Ming worked for that company at that time. And I just thought, you know what, guys, let's let's pack it up. Let's head back north. <laughs> oh, they're closing up. They are not. Get a shot of them closing the gate. The war begins, but the cowards ended by closing the gate. WCW is a bunch of cowards as we stand. We stand now. Go down there. Go down there. All the way down. We stand now at your door, knocking on that door. When they shut the door, which in hindsight, I'm glad that happened because I have no idea what would have happened had we got in the building, man. Okay, so what happens if WCW's talent is pissed off and feels like that you're punking them and, you know, want to fight? We We didn't even think of it. Ah, Ming. Well, we'll get there. One second. See, toward the end of their journey in the invasion, DX sees the garage door that the production crew enters through for the event, and they made their way toward it. They had been advised not to enter the arena, but WWE producer Bruce Pritchard knew that the ramp was technically a continuation of a city street, so it was fair game. They drove up to the gate as it was closing and half-seriously pounded on it, yelling that they needed to talk to Mr. Bischoff. A quick explainer for the uninitiated. Eric Bischoff is in charge of WCW. He's the showrunner and the executive and the on-screen announcer turned villain who symbolized both the rise of WCW. See, it was him that convinced Ted Turner to open up the purse strings that would allow WCW to compete directly with WWE and its excesses, as his ego seemed to drive the on-screen presentations of his favorite stars and, of course, his own presence as a character in the first place. He was an easy punching bag for WWE derision. But anyway, DX is up at the door and they're yelling through. The invasion of Nitro such as it is, is a great moment or series of moments, but nothing really happens. The idea is the execution. They did it, that's the whole point. But something could have happened. See, every time you hear the story told, it seems like it always gets back to what could have happened. And that matters in a weird, very wrestling-specific way. Let me explain. The DX Invasion was in 1998, but let's go back even further. Indulge me. Let's rewind all the way to January 1984. Madison Square Garden was on its feet, giving a welcome as Hulkamania The match itself wasn't much to write home about. Hogan was kind of working as a heel, as he often did back then. Back rakes, eye gouges, liberal use of the Sheik's own kafia to blind him. And, and quickly as it started, the match was done. The point wasn't the match, 
It was the win. It was the changing of the guard. It was the triumph of good over evil. Or, if you want to write former champion Bob Backlund into the equation, it was the implicit triumph of cool over good, and evil was the transitional champion. It's a huge moment in WWE history because it ensconced Hogan as the top guy and established the Vincent K. McMahon booking philosophy. But the match itself wasn't much more than function. Looking back, there was never any doubt. The Sheik wasn't built up to be a long-term champion. He was only there to take the title from Bob Backlund and then to serve it up to Hulk Hogan. There wasn't any drama, only exuberance at the inevitable conclusion. But there's a but here. The story, as it's been told by both of the parties in the ring that night, goes deeper. See, Vince McMahon had signed Hulk Hogan away from Vern Gagne's AWA, along with a handful of his other headliners. And now WWE was threatening national expansion, which would upend the AWA's whole business model. McMahon had offered to buy AWA outright. The offer was either totally reasonable or offensively low, depending on which side of the negotiations you listened to. And after Gagne rebuffed him, McMahon decided to just steamroll him. The story goes that as a means of old school retribution, Ganya offered the Iron Sheik, who broke into wrestling under Ganya, $100,000 to break Hulk Hogan's leg in that match instead of going along with the script and then to bring the championship back to the AWA. Hogan himself told the story on the Steve Austin podcast. Little did I know, Vern Ganya went out and said he'd give the Sheik $100,000 if he broke my leg. And this is from the Sheik, I won't be doing an impression, Mr. Vern Gagne, one night before the match with Hogan, he called me and told me, Kosro, don't drop the belt to Hogan. Come back to Minnesota. I'll take care of you and give you $100,000. According to Bruce Pritchard, if he wanted to break Hulk's leg, there wasn't much Hulk was going to be able to do about it. And there's the rub. Gagne's son Greg says that the bounty story is absolutely untrue. But the truth of it matters less than the reality of it the implied reality. When Hogan won the title, wrestling still existed in a sort of pre-post-truth netherworld. He was celebrated for winning the title, like a champion boxer would be celebrated. But as the years wore on and the staged aspect of pro wrestling became an open secret, a match of that scale needed some real-world stakes. The bounty story gives it those stakes. It gives it legitimacy. Pro wrestling doesn't need legitimacy read back into it necessarily, but it's a natural extension of the realities of the sport. To a lesser extent, it's why we eagerly focus so much on the real-life athleticism and strength of wrestlers, and the real-life injuries and the tolls they put their bodies through. See last episode. Wrestling isn't a traditional athletic contest, sure, but the bigger put on is that the degree of significance, the stakes, can't possibly be as high as they're made to seem. And so this kind of real world danger is retroactively inserted into a match. Not just the bounty, but inevitability. If he wanted to break Hulk's leg, there was nothing Hulk could do about it to recreate the implied stakes of the original match. Which brings us back to the night DX invaded Nitro. Eric Bischoff wasn't on the other side of that door. 
If he had been, sure, getting him on camera would have been a big win for DX, a jolt of reality into the proceedings. But the next degree of reality was something they probably didn't want. The what-if mythology of the DX invasion is not about Bischoff, but about a wrestler named Ming. Perhaps better known by his WWE moniker Haku, Ming was a Tongan wrestler who was never truly a headliner. His tag team with Andre the Giant was probably his apex, and by this point, he was a monstrous also-ran. But he was revered by every wrestler in the locker room. And with good reason. In 1989, a guy in the Baltimore airport bar called Wrestling Fake, and Haku bit his nose off. Bobby Heenan told a story about him breaking off a guy's bottom teeth with two fingers. Just take a moment and process that. There are a million Haku stories like this. Some of them are probably even true. What matters is he's the toughest, scariest guy in wrestling history, and that he represents the real-life stakes of the DX invasion even as the gravity of the moment has faded with time and, of course, in the shadow of WWE's eventual triumph over WCW. There's no version of the invasion story that doesn't invoke the specter of Ming in its retelling. Take it from Road Dog. Everybody goes to that, right? Because he will eat you. Recently, I talked to Shane Helms, a.k.a. The Hurricane, about something totally different. He hadn't even started working for WCW yet at this point, but the invasion came up. He said something to me that I've heard many, many times before, that he's shocked WCW didn't take it more seriously. And another thing, if that DX invasion would have happened when, when I was in WCW, I would have been one of the guys voicing the opinion of, hey, let's go out there and kick their ass. <laughs> you know, I don't understand why they didn't. To this day, and I wonder what would have happened in the Monday Night Wars if the Steiner brothers and Haku went out there and just beat their ass because they could have. And I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if DX ever gets off the ground if that happens. Now hold on, let me say now I I, I want to clarify. I would have encouraged other guys to go beat their ass. I would have stayed inside. <laughs> I would have stayed inside and watched. Why does Ming slash Haku matter? Because the moment matters. And almost every moment that matters in pro wrestling has real-world stakes retconned into the telling. It's not a deconstruction of the moment to point it out. It's a validation of the moment. We talk about Ming because the invasion actually mattered. What it symbolized mattered, anyway. That night, WWE won the metaphorical battle, won the actual ratings contest, and set the course for winning the metaphorical war. Would Ming have actually eaten them? It doesn't really matter. But as long as I'm chipping away at mythology here, I wanted to talk to somebody who had interacted with the terrifying Ming in recent years. Hello, everybody. This is the knockout artist, the wrestling genius. Yes, this is Chris Hero. He is a terrifying individual. You know, he has all the nose biting stories, the poking someone's eye out, the, the whatever. But I think... I don't know if 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 Haku was riding hard for WCW at this time. You know, maybe he's he's getting paid well, making good money. He sees some wrestlers come in the locker room. He, I mean, he might go at him. He might give him a hug. Right? It, it's crazy because twenty twenty two Haku right is the sweetest, most grandfatherly. Per- he's always has this big smile on his face. Um, He's just such a, a sweet guy. Um, I, I, and, I, you know, I've, in my interactions with him, I'm always kind of 
trying to ask stuff about his career and he'll always indulge me. And it's, it's just, it's really cool, right? Full disclosure, I also wanted to talk to Chris Hero about something else, just like I did with Trey Kirby. Now think, what do these two guys have in common? Stay tuned and hopefully it'll all make sense. Welcome back to the war. In this war, in 1998, uh, those TV ratings, the Nielsen ratings, they were everything. The history of the Monday Night War is told by the ratings, by WCW's rise in the ratings, and their 83 weeks of dominance in the ratings, and WWE's steady climb back up in the ratings, and their eventual ratings win and subsequent dominance in the ratings. There are inciting incidents, the NWO on one end and Austin versus McMahon on the other end. One-off moments like Mick Foley winning the title, more on that in an upcoming episode, and yes, the DX invasion of Nitro, those moments mattered too, but the metric for the entire war wasn't land conquered or body count, it was Nielsen ratings. If you went to any of the wrestling websites, they would mention the ratings and they would say like, so-and-so has won this many weeks in a row, or in the last couple months, this, you know, WCW you know, won 10 times, something like that. So it was kind of like an ongoing thing. I never really looked too much into it. This isn't the story of a match, but it's just as important as one. More important, maybe, because it's not just about WWE taking the fight to WCW in an almost literal way. It's about what happened next. Because the day that DX invaded WCW Nitro, on the night that it aired, WWE won the Monday Night Ratings battle. And okay, okay, they had won two weeks prior, on April 13th, when Stone Cold Steve Austin challenged Vince McMahon to a match on Raw, infamously with one hand tied behind his back, only to have the match interrupted by Mick Foley in his Dude Love character, who aligned himself with McMahon. That was officially the end of WCW's notorious 83-week winning streak in the ratings. This is pretty heavy stuff, man. Like, at the time, like, there's two companies, right, that you can make a good living at. And they're asking us to go and do something that could potentially take one of the buyers off the market for us completely, like totally like burn our bridge with them, you know? And we were all like, oh yeah, can't wait to do it. <laughs> it just sounded like the greatest thing ever, man. You know, cause like who the hell has the balls to do that? Two weeks later, DX marched boldly, recklessly onto the battlefield in Norfolk, Virginia with the verve of an army on the upswing. It was guerrilla warfare, yeah, but, but the tide had already begun to turn, thanks to the nuclear stockade the generals had amassed. Yes, I know, these war metaphors, they're, they're too easy. But perhaps there's a better metaphor to employ here. Think of it this way. WWE had clawed back from a 20-point deficit to go up by two in the fourth quarter. Coming out of the timeout, they run an ISO right into the heart of WCW's defense and posterize the whole team. Except here's the thing. In this admittedly very tortured metaphor, the defense isn't even on the court. If you're a wrestling fan, you know the sound of a body hitting the mat. The sound of the ring bell chiming to start a match. The sound of the referee's hand hitting the mat three times and the crowd erupting into a unanimous cheer or boo at the result. You know the sounds of a pro wrestling show. If you were a wrestling fan during the Monday Night Wars, there's one other sound you might be familiar with. Kevin Nash came out. 
You're either with them or you are against them as the headbangers get ready. That in the middle there, that's the sound of the channel changing. And okay, it's a sound effect. It's a little archaic, even for the 90s. Most of us had cable boxes with seamless audio transitions by then, but you get the point. We talk about the NWO, we talk about Austin versus McMahon, about DX and Sting and The Undertaker and everything else that made us watch every Monday night. But the most central aspect to the war if you were a dedicated fan, was flipping back and forth between channels to try to watch two shows at the same time. This was before TV on demand, mind you, before TiVo. And yeah, everybody knew somebody who would tape one show on their VCR on the TV upstairs while they watched the other show live. But for me and for so many others, this is how you watched. You sat stock still in front of the television and flipped back and forth every few minutes or seconds to try to take in two shows at once. Also, and it bears mention, Nitro was broadcast twice. It ran back to back for part of the war. So if you wanted to watch it or rewatch it later in the night, you could. But I have to tell you, on its own, late, late at night, it lost a lot of its magic. Here's Chris Hero. Nitro would play twice. So Nitro had an early hour. So you'd watch the first hour of Nitro. And then you'd kind of skip back and forth. Didn't really matter because if you missed something on Nitro, you could, you know, watch it a couple hours later. You'd set a tape to record or a little bit after that. Um, we're, we're talking now into 1999. I worked third shift at a Hampton Inn in Inglewood, Ohio, right? So we'd watch, we'd watch wrestling and then I'd go and clock in and then there's not a whole lot going on at 2 a.m. at a hotel. And you just put it on and I'd watch Nitro. Everybody had their own viewing habits during the Monday Night Wars. Here's Trey Kirby again. For me, it would be watch Raw as it's happening. And then if there was something that absolutely needed to be seen on WCW Nitro, Eric Snyder would come through with a tape of it that we could all review the next time we got together so we could stay up to date. We didn't have DVR at the time. We didn't have on-demand viewing. So you kind of had to pick one or go flip mode. Uh, and for me, it was stick with one and catch up on the other. For me, it was the click, the flip, the trying to be two places at the same time. It was a battle for attention, after all. The ratings were just our concrete reflection of that. The ratings tell the story, provide the narrative arc for WCW's rise and fall and WWE's eventual reclamation of the top spot, but it just was not your usual Nielsen family pick one show and watch it straight through and then decide what show to watch next kind of viewing experience. Monday nights for wrestling fans were antic, chaotic. You'd give a segment 10 seconds to catch your attention before you flip to make sure the other show wasn't doing something more important. If you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thanks for listening, you might be saying, okay, but how important could something actually be on a wrestling show? If you are a wrestling fan and you weren't alive in the 90s, you might be wondering this even more loudly. See, without Twitter reactions and video highlights on YouTube and Reddit threads, if you missed something, you might really miss it. You'd read what happened on a blog somewhere, but if you didn't see it, you might never see it again. That's where the urgency of the flip came from. And that's a lot of what made the whole Monday Night War seem so urgent. But on April 27th, 1998, if you were flipping channels, flipping back and forth between the USA Network and TNT, 
On one channel, you saw DX invading the arena where Nitro was being held. And on the other channel, well... If you turned on TNT on April 27th, 1998, you were treated to Game 3 between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Indiana Pacers. A first-round NBA playoff matchup from a couple of solid Midwestern teams, though maybe not top of the pops at the time. Here we go. Here is Mark Jackson. He left Brevin Knight on the floor and Miller hitting a three. In the metaphorical postseason of the Monday Night Wars, as the score tightened for the first time ever, one team didn't even get the chance to play. Instead of Nitro, TNT aired Cavs Pacers Game 3 and Suns Spurs Game 3. If you were a wrestling fan and a basketball fan, like yours truly, and like Trey, and like Chris, there was some joy in toggling back and forth between Break it down. and I mean, Rookie Tim Duncan versus Antonio McDice is a legitimate big-time heavyweight contest. Rick Smits versus Cavs-era Sean Kemp? Well, that's spectacle, if nothing else. If I'm a wrestling fan, first and foremost, and I turn on WCW Nitro, and I see Rick Smits shooting a 14-footer, I'm disappointed. That's not what I'm looking for on April 27th. I'm wanting to see how the Monday Night Wars are actually playing out, and I'm wanting to see it as it's happening. For as good of a passer as Mark Jackson is, I'd much rather see the invasion. If you think your show is over, but you want to keep watching wrestling, and you turn to WWE, and it seems to be an awesome night uh, for the company, why wouldn't you stick around? You're not going back to see Sean Kemp put up 31. Here he had 31 points that night. I think Sean Kemp's stint with the Cavs is kind of looked down on because he, you know, he achieved what he achieved in Seattle and was awesome. And then he, you know, kind of here's here's your chance to kind of show like you're not just an all-star, you could be an MVP candidate. And I don't know if he didn't, you know, I don't know if age caught up to him. I don't know if physical conditioning caught up to him, but he just was not the Sean Kemp that people expected, the Rain Man, right? So I think most people wouldn't realize like, yo, this Sean Kemp had 31 points in a playoff game, right? But if you were more interested, say, in the split of the NWO, in Kevin Nash badmouthing Hulk Hogan, or Bret Hart finally answering for his diabolical actions, well, you had to wait until 12.30 Eastern time, after midnight, to get your fill. And it didn't just start at 12.30. Nitro was also only an hour long. The other two hours of the show, which are now artfully edited into one block on Peacock, but the transition is still there at the 55-ish minute mark, ran the following night on Tuesday at 6 p.m. And Thunder, WCW's Thursday show on TBS, was off the air entirely until May 14th. Suddenly, all you had left was Raw. On the one hand, no channel flipping necessary. But on the other hand... Well, you realize how much the flip was part of the thrill. The internecine squabbling loses a lot of its luster when it's on at one in the morning. Well, you know, we came out here and Kevin Nash came out. His faction of the New World Order, he did their survey. Who likes WCW? Who likes NWO? There's another big survey taken here today in the Virginia waterfront. What's that, Tony? You can just see it in the fans here. We've been sold out for months. 30 miles up the road. They can't give tickets away. What? A burn. 
If a tree falls at 1.15 in the morning on TNT and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? We'll leave that one to the philosophers. But that night, Raw scored a whopping 5.7 rating, its highest rating ever. And Nitro clocked in at a 1.7. The previous week, WCW had won 5-1 to 4-4. And the week before that, when WWE had finally won one, that was a 4-6 to 4-2 victory. Wrestling fans in 1998 cared about these numbers more than they ever cared about anybody's win-loss record. It was the only real quantifiable thing in the only real storyline in the entire wrestling business. And that night, WWE scored a 5.7 on a set shot with no defenders on the court. No, wait, I can do better. It was a fast break dunk. And yeah, they pulled out a 360 to get the crowd going, but there was nobody in the way. Or more simply put, it was a layup. And that was the night that WWE tells us the tide turned. Is it possible, possible that the real turning point in the Monday Night Wars was a double header of mediocre NBA games? That a chunk of wrestling fans just changed the channel from WCW to WWE that night and never looked back? Or that, at a minimum, that Turner seeding the stage to the DX invasion of Nitro, gifting wrestling fans undivided attention to Triple H and the crew, that that gave fans an opportunity to see that WWE was the superior product. Nitro was preempted, right? They were going to win the ratings that night anyway. They just happened to be 30 miles down the road, decided to film some content. You know, maybe some people could look at that as a bait and switch because I'm sure people were watching that, some people at least, thinking... Oh, I wonder who's going to open the door. I wonder if it's going to be, you know, whatever. And thinking that the show is going to end in some match or brawl or something. That didn't happen, but it didn't matter because they had like both audiences, right? Because what was, there were some playoff games going on and they put on a show and they, I think that show at that time was, wasn't it like the highest rated on cable television is I, I think I, I think I read that in the observer that that night when they were unopposed, it became the, you know, the highest rated wrestling show in the history of cable television. So it's like, well, damn, it doesn't really matter because they did the, they did the skits outside the Norfolk scope. They killed the ratings, you know, they, they crushed them. And yeah, I mean, that's, those are the details. Those are facts. Not to take anything away from the DX invasion of Nitro, but here's Road Dog. You know, looking back on it, and I've watched it recently because we, like I said, we covered it. It's funny, but it's not as funny as I thought it was then. You know what I mean? Like looking back as a 53-year-old man, I'm like, what a bunch of friggin' kids. You know what I mean? Like what a bunch of adolescents. And that's what we were, you know? Good old sophomoric humor. Okay, so it was sophomoric, but that doesn't negate the effect that it had. The sophomoric stuff worked. Here's Chris Hero again. It's so funny because back then, I'm sure I thought, oh, it's kind of kind of funny, kind of cool. Uh, I go back and watch the segment now a little bit older, and I'm like, ah, it's, a little, it's a little cheesy, a little corny. Uh, some of the jokes, you know, you're like, oh, oh, man. And I also feel like there's a part of me that feels when you are the number two, and you make reference to the number one, you're just kind of reminding everybody that you're number two, right? 
I, there's a part of me that feels that way. I know that's not always the case, but if something like that were presented now, I would be like, ah, uh, maybe don't do it. Just just go have good shows, like have good matches, good shows, good stories, and just keep plugging, right? That's that's what I would think in my head now. But you go back and you look at this, and it's this thing that everybody remembers, and they even got action figures made from the you know the Billy Gun with the branches out of his helmet, uh, the camouflage, right? That that got an action figure. What the hell, right? So this was an iconic scene that. I don't know. I you you think you got the business figured out, and then there are so many outliers that are like, ah, eh, not really. Sometimes it doesn't matter. The road from losing for eighty three weeks in the ratings to winning the Monday Night War was not a straight line. As I said, WWE won in the ratings war two weeks prior to the invasion, and and the week following the DX invasion saw Nitro repeated again for the NBA playoffs. And WWE held a lead throughout the playoffs, a lead they maintained even after the NBA season. WCW played their ace card on July 6th when Goldberg faced Hogan for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship in the Georgia Dome. And that night, WCW won 4-8 to 4.0. And WCW won a few more neck and neck races over the next couple of months. But by then, at least in retrospect, it was clear that the writing was on the wall. WCW's power built upon the shocking NWO angle and the acquisition of WWE stars, eventually for the sake of the moment and very little else. Hey, look who we got now. Now back to the NWO stuff was not built to last. What you see on that midnight episode of Nitro on the night of the DX invasion, their problem was there in a nutshell. The breakup of the NWO was a heavy-handed ratings ploy, and not to mention a tacit admission of the failure of the angle as a long-term investment. And the squandering of Bret Hart, one of the best wrestlers in the entire world, was an even greater sin. I mean, that was their show. History is written by the victors, so it's no surprise to me that the story goes that WWE shut down WCW without mentioning other contributing factors that may have been at play. First and foremost being that the show wasn't on. <laughs> that seems to be a huge problem when you're trying to get people to watch. Uh, so yeah, I, I can understand why what's actually happening on the other network isn't necessarily discussed when they're talking about their great moments. I think when you think about moments, right, there are so many ECW moments that people are like, oh, wow, this thing happened and this thing happened and whatever. And then you go back and you watch ECW and by today's standards, some of it doesn't quite hold up as well as you remember. But that doesn't make the moment any less. It's just some of the, some things are just clunkier. And over time, you just get a little bit more precise with what you do. And then not to say that matches are always trumped by moments, right? Because if a match is good enough, that in and of itself becomes a moment. But sometimes all you need is just that character interaction, that swerve of a you know emotional thing that we, we've seen built to and then it takes you in a different direction and it just makes you feel a certain way it's that oh my gosh that moment made me feel a certain way and then it just occupies space in your brain till the end of time the moment certainly occupied space in eric bischoff's brain when they were finally back in their usual slot on the may 11th episode of nitro bischoff came to the ring by himself 
and cut a promo where he, Eric Bischoff, challenged Vince McMahon to a fight at the upcoming WCW pay-per-view. This would have never happened in a million years. McMahon wouldn't have done it, and he certainly wouldn't have done it on the opposition's show and let them make the money. The week after that, Bischoff did a follow-up soliloquy sitting on a motorcycle, just trying as hard as humanly possible to seem cool and not phased at all by what WWE and DX had done. So Vince McMahon, this is for you. I'm coming to your backyard this Sunday. That's right, where's some ass? Got a little pay-per-view thing going on. And I got a hell of an idea. Just a hell of an idea. You want me? I'm gonna be in your backyard. Consider this an open invitation, Vince McMahon. You show up at Slamboree. It'll be me and you, McMahon, in the ring. Well, he's got me with that one. I buy a ticket. About it, Vinny. But I want to warn you people right now, if you think Vince McMahon has got the guts to show up, don't buy this pay-per-view, because I guarantee you, he is not man enough to step into the ring with moi. But I'll be there, Vinnie Mac. I'll be waiting for you, and I'm gonna knock you out. See you there! The invasion made for great TV, great unopposed TV. But Bischoff's reaction to it may be more significant than the invasion itself. Because the real battle wasn't out in the real world, and it wasn't, in the end, a real-life fight between promoters. It was a battle waged in the ring in making good TV. See, by challenging Vince, Bischoff was promising bad TV. Because if the fight had actually happened, and it wouldn't, it would have been bad TV. Real fights in a world of stage fights are almost never as good as you might think they'd be. But more importantly, Bischoff was promising something that was never going to happen at all. He knew Vince wasn't going to say yes, so he took this primetime spot and went to the ring by himself and promoted something that was never going to happen. He was guaranteeing a letdown for the audience. He was calling his shot and pointing squarely at failure. That wasn't the end of the Monday Night Wars, but it might as well have been. It wasn't just because DX rode up to Nitro's arena on a Jeep called a tank and made a joke of the competition. It was because WCW didn't even show up for the fight. It's not that they didn't open the garage door. It's that the TV channel didn't open the garage door. They weren't on TV that night. And maybe more importantly, it drove Eric Bischoff nuts. Generation X, the only group in the world with the cojones big enough to come to the front line to fight the battle, to come to the front line and fire the first shot. We are D-Generation X, and we will take no prisoners. So why does DX get so much credit, and none goes to Reggie Miller, and Sean Kemp, and Tim Duncan? Because just like with everything else in pro wrestling, it's because it makes a better story this way. And it's not an inaccurate story, really. 
It's just a simplified, streamlined version of reality. And it's one that paints the good guys as the conquering heroes. That's how all good stories end. Because it sounds awesome. Invading another company, another network, another promotion. It is a takeover. And in a world where you're creating storylines of conflict, what more conflict can you ask for than going in and hostily taking over something else that you're competing against. To this very day, if we're trying to figure out when we're scheduling a live stream or if we're going to be appearing on somebody else's podcast, it's still a takeover. And that joke still comes up that we're going to be hopping in a tank to roll up to an all-star weekend event that we're not supposed to be there. So I think it's just a, such a unique sounding thing and something that seems so real and so outside the bounds of the way television usually works that it's gotta be blown up to the proportion it has been. If you start to get actually upset with the embellishments in pro wrestling, um, you're not going to enjoy much pro wrestling. And I, I do the same thing because I will have been somewhere for some event and then I'll hear someone tell the story and I'm going, that's not how that went. <laughs> right. So I have certain things where I'm like, I get annoyed with this or that or there are some legends in wrestling that tell it 100% like it is. Uh, they'll tell the story. It's great. It's awesome. And then there's other people that'll tell the stories and they'll exaggerate and kind of turn it into you know, something that it isn't or something that it wasn't. But because of their audience, because of their stature, that's the story that lives on. Maybe not in I 2022, not but the 98 Pacers team was actually I just, really, I don't know. Really there was just good. something about Rick them. Rick Smith was an all-star that season. Reggie you know, Miller Dale Davis, was an all-star Antonio that Davis, season. Smith, if you throw out the Chicago Bulls, the eventual like the, NBA the champion, they were the best team like in the, the Eastern Orlando Conference, Magic, and they looked right? like they were going to have uh, a I like I wrote and reported this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Finnessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Littman. Our producers are B. Brian H. Walters, Big Papa Pump Ben Cruz, and Vivacious Vikram Patel. Story editing by Hacksaw Cal Davenport. Sound design and final mixing by the American Dream Devin Ronaldo and Sweet Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Amar Bad News Burton and fact checking by Juliana Locke Ress. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, a.k.a. The Masked Man. Thanks for listening.